People have car accidents for different reasons. <laughs> car crashes happen for various reasons, but one of the main ones I remember hearing some years ago is what they call rear mirror syndrome. And people are going forward, but they keep on checking what's behind them. They keep, and obviously, you're meant to check your rear view mirror from time to time. It's a bit of a problem for me at the moment because on one of my cars, I haven't got one. I know. I know. So I've got two side mirrors. That'll do, you know, for now. So, uh, but you want me to check. But, but if you're constantly looking back, one of the main causes of accidents, traffic cops say, is looking in the rear view mirror. Looking back instead of look, when you should be looking forward. Yes. In fact, there was a time some years ago, I, had, I managed to have a little mini car accident. Not, not a mini car. I mean, I mean a, a minor accident. I mean, in a car. Okay? And it, I'd barely gotten out of my driveway. So I was still in my road. And I was backing up. And I hadn't realized the neighbor had parked there on the side. So I was, I was actually backing up. But I was looking through the front, actually, this time. About, for the way that I'd come. I was wondering, what my... You may even have been there, Brandon. I don't know, but my, my son and some of his mates were messing about doing something in the garden. And I was so busy looking at what they were doing. I wasn't looking the way I should have been going, yes. the way I was going. And, uh, and so I even had these sensors on the back. And they beeped. They worked. Beep, 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 beep. Just as I hit it. So the sensors didn't stop me from hitting the car. It just meant I hit the car to musical accompaniment. That's all that. <laughs> but I hit something because I wasn't looking the way I was going. I was looking backwards. I was, I was looking forwards, backwards, if you see what I mean, because I was going back. Well, anyway, you got the idea. I was looking the wrong way. God's call to us right now in this new season is not to look at the past not to look at all the problems, not to look even at the pain that we've experienced. It's time to look forward yes. and to move into all that he's got for us. We can't untangle all the mess of the past. We have to leave it with him. We have to move yes. forward into the new thing that God's got for us. In fact, I think there are two, three prophetic movements at this time. One is upward. Can everybody please say upward? Upward, you know, to rise like the eagle. That's what God's been speaking to us about. And Dan was reminding us brilliantly last week how if you're going to move forward into the promise, you've got to start seeing things from a different perspective. Do you remember? So Caleb and Joshua, they saw things differently. They were, and therefore they had a different spirit and therefore they were able to wholeheartedly go into the promise, into the future. So if you want to move forward, you've got to start first by moving upward. So everybody say upward. upward. And then we move forward. Everybody forward. say forward. forward. Into the promises of God. And also because, and I was talking about Abraham a couple, a few weeks back. For Abraham, because the call on his life was to be a blessing to the nations, the call forward is also a call outward. Because we are to be a blessing to the nations. Yes. It was a calling for Abraham to come out of his cave, to call out, come out of his small-mindedness, to see the stars, that's the upward, to move into what he had, and moving forward into what God had for him meant he was moving outward to the nations. Everybody say outward. 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 So moving upward. Upward. Thank you, you, you've got the idea, Richard. Everybody else is going to catch up with you in just a minute, honestly, in a few seconds. I'm just going to point, I'm conducting, that's what I'm doing this time, okay? First movement is... And then, and, that's it, you've got the idea. 
So three prophetic movements, first of all, and I was reminding you of this in Abraham, uh, sorry, in Genesis chapter 13, where Abraham left, was Abraham and Lot separated, but then God said, don't look at the past, look upward, forward, and outward, and move forward. And so he did that, and I, at the end of Genesis chapter 13, I drew attention to three things. So there's three prophetic movements. Well done, Richard. That's it. Well done. But there's also three prophetic reminders. I wonder if anybody can remember. There were three little prophetic pictures to remind Abraham that he was a pilgrim. Prophetic reminders. First of all, there was the tree. Remember, he camped near the oaks of Mamre. And the tree was to remind him that his calling as God's chosen and his family as God's chosen people was to transform our world was to turn the desert into the garden of God. And the tree was a reminder of that purpose to which he had been called. And then he camped in tents. And the tent was a reminder that we are all pilgrims. If we're part of God's prophetic people, we are pilgrims. We don't belong here. We're passing through. And it's those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage who turn the desert place into a place of springs. So that it can become the garden of God. So we keep this pilgrim spirit. We're not kind of, right, that's it. We've got through all that. Let's just settle down for a while now, shall we? Let's just get off. Let's get comfortable. No, 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 no. We're pilgrims. Always moving onward. Always moving forward. So there's the tree. There's the tent. And finally, I'm sure you can all remember this one because we demonstrated it together last week. There was the, the altar. We are worshipping worshipping pilgrims, first and foremost. We are those whose hearts are devoted to the Lord. That's what the altar speaks of, hearts devoted to the Lord, but also of worship. And I I loved how Dan was reminding us last week again how we must keep singing. We must keep singing our song of worship because although as pilgrims we don't belong in this world, our citizenship is in heaven, we belong to a heavenly country, yet nevertheless we must sing the Lord's song in the strange land. We must sing the Lord's song on this earth because it's, it's, it's from the fullness of that heart, heart, sorry, springs everything, flows everything from a heart of worship. That's what enables us to turn the wilderness of this world into a place of springs into the garden of God. And so three prophetic direct movements. Go for it, Richard. <laughs> Upwards, forwards, outwards. That's it. You got it. Well done. And then three prophetic reminders. The tree, the tent, and the altar. So Abraham now is moving forwards. He's had all of that. He's got that prophetic reminder. He's moving forward into what God's got for him. How many of you know it wasn't plain sailing from there? From that point on, it wasn't like, see, I don't know about you, but I, I used to think, you know, after, I, after I'd kind of gotten through some difficult things as a young Christian, I used to think the trajectory of my spiritual life would be like a, an arrow, going from glory to glory, as I said, from faith to faith, from victory to victory. I thought it'd be like this arrow just going straight to, anybody else think, make that mistake? 
my, the trajectory of my spiritual life is more like a kind of a bird that's been on something. I don't know. It's kind of going <laughs> all over the place, backwards and forwards and down and looping. I don't know. It's a drunken bird. Anybody else had that? Drunken bird. Don't misunderstand that statement now. Um, um, you know, in other words, it's not been straightforward. It's not been all been a straightforward trajectory. And um, it wasn't for Abraham. The spiritual life, life seldom is. There are setbacks. There are disappointments. There are messes. I mean, straight away for Abraham, he gets drawn into a mess that Lot created. And he has to go and try and rescue Lot. But then, he doesn't only get drawn into other people's mess, he creates his own mess. Because although he's got the promise of God that he's going to have a family and he's going to have children, him and his wife thought, well, we'll do it our way. And they end up having an Ishmael. And how many of us have tried to do it our, way, our own way yeah. instead of trusting God and we've ended up with an Ishmael? Hmm? Yeah. And then there's, I don't know, other things are happening. He compromised his wife through lying about her. And so we do stupid things, don't we? And it doesn't always go straightforwardly. And things happen. Life happens. But in and amongst that, this is basically my summary of the next three chapters, you know, mess. But mess, in the mess, God meets with him. There are encounters with God. There are encounters with people that God speaks through. That you might not have. There was this strange figure of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who's really... A weird figure in the Bible. He's like a kind of pre-incarnation appearing of Jesus, I think. And he brings this word to Abraham. And we have the first kind of breaking of bread and wine. And he, and he has this amazing dream where God encounters him and makes his covenant, affirms his covenant with him. I want to encourage you in all the, the messiness of life. And it is messy at times. Look for the golden thread of God's grace. And God's goodness that we've been singing about this morning of God's love. God seldom waves a magic wand, but he does constantly weave a golden thread through the mess and the tapestry of your life. Look for that. And there's a number of times like that. And I can think back just two and a half years ago when things looked like they were a mess in many ways. I met a man, an older man in a graveyard in Warrington. It was significant that it was in a graveyard. I'll maybe explain later, but... And he said to Alison and I, and he didn't know us from Adam, I just conducted the funeral of May Naylor, and he said, "Um, this is a year of restoration for you. Go and finish the work that you started. Didn't know me from Adam. And it just affirms something that God already spoken into my heart. Look for those moments. C.S. Lewis calls them being surprised by joy. There are, in all the messiness where you kind of think, I don't know how stuff's going to work out. There are little moments of God's goodness and God's grace. Look out for them. Treasure them. And we get to one of those moments. We get to one of those moments here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 17. And I want us to read this together. Genesis chapter 17. God's going to renew his covenant with him. Reading from the NIV. Marjorie's here, but I'm reading quite a chunk. She's not here today. Tell her I did. 
When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. That word came in the prayer meeting this morning. Lord, make us fruitful. This is the promise of God to his covenant people. By the way, Abraham's our father in the faith. That means all these promises for him are also for us. Okay, so receive them as promises for ourselves. And Abraham must be feeling so good at this point. Amongst all the mess with Lot and Ishmael and all the stuff that had gone wrong. At this point, this is one of those, I was going to say magic moments then, but I don't, I want to, you know what I mean, golden moments. Not magic. That's something different. He says, I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for all the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner yet still singing even in the foreign land. I will give you an everlast- as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I, and, and, uh, and I will be their God. I mean, Abraham must be, oh yes, Lord. Yes, this is wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And there goes, God goes on. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Yes, Lord, absolutely, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me. This is my covenant with you. Yes, Lord, what is it? This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. This, the covenant you are to keep. Yes, Lord, absolutely, yes, Lord. What is it? Every male among you must be circumcised. Um... Come again, Lord. Can somebody just help me test this word, whether it's from the Lord or not? Here, this is Abraham. I don't think it's from the Lord, is it? Then God said to him, as for you, you must keep this. What did he say? The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Are you sure, Lord? (laughs) For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Can we just start with the babies? Let's just start from the eight-year-olds and go on from there, Lord. No, it goes on. You and all those born in your household and so on. Those, including those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. Who's telling them, Lord? Are you going to tell them? (laughs) Or have I got to tell them? Yes. This is the sign of the covenant. You will be circumcised. And so it goes on. 
My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people for, for they have broken my covenant. Oh God, you really are serious about this, aren't you? We don't know why God chose circumcision. Other people at the time had, other peoples at the time had circumcision, but God invests this strange sign of the covenant with all kinds of significance and meaning. I don't know what Abraham must have thought about it. I can imagine some things he might have thought. But circumcision became the most significant sign of God's covenant people, of God's promise. And Paul takes it up in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament practice, but Paul takes it up in the New Testament. But here, thankfully, it has become an inward circumcision of the heart. I want you to turn with me, please, because this is significant because right at the outset of his moving into what God has for him, God says, you've got to be circumcised. Last week, Dan was talking about the Israelites entering the promised land. Then he talked about the memorial stone, do you remember? But you know, there was something that happened around about the same time as the memorial stone. And it was, it took place at a place called Gilgal. Because in the wilderness, they had not been circumcised. Oh, and by the way, even after that word came to Joshua and Caleb, when they were ready to go in and take the land, there was 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness. For all the unbelievers to die off before they could enter the land. So it's never, it's not always straightforward. You've got to be prepared. There's going to be some wandering sometimes. But when it comes ready, as we are now, for entering into the new thing that God's got before us, at Gil, we have our Gilgal experience. We must have our hearts circumcised. And so I want us to look at, just this morning briefly, at the circumcision of the heart and what that means for us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2, first of all, please. Romans chapter 2. As we enter into the promises of God, as we enter into the new thing that God's about to do among us, what does it mean to be circumcised in the heart? First of all, Romans chapter 2. And by the way, this became a massive issue in the early church. Because many of them who become Christians, they still believed that people, that, that men who became Christians should be circumcised. It's still, they, they saw it in terms of the Jewish religion still, an offshoot of the Jewish religion, and they still felt that they should be physically circumcised. But Paul was passionate. No! God's done something new here. It's no longer about an outward external sign. It's about an inward work of the heart by the Spirit of God. And we mustn't undermine that. Yeah. It's not about trying to be uh, holier than thou. That's what circumcision became. We're Jewish. You're, you're the uncircumcised. You're the filthy lot. We are. The Jew- That's not the heart that God is after because the heart is always to bless, to be a blessing to the nations. Okay. So, so Paul is saying, no, we're not having any of that anymore. It's not about us and them. It's about the work that God does in each and every one of us in his heart. And this is how he explains it. In Romans 8, it's Romans 2, sorry, verse 8 to 9 says, verse 28, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not 
from other people, but from God. Yes. So that should be Romans 2, verses 28 to 29, right at the very end of Romans 2. Did you all get that? A person who's been circumcised inwardly in the heart by the Spirit is somebody, verse 29 now please, is somebody whose praise is not from other people, but from God. This is the mark of the true circumcision of the heart. We don't live for what other people think of us. We don't live for other people's approval or praise. We're simply living for God's pleasure. We're living for an audience of one. Everything that we do from the heart is to be for him. And the circumcision is the heart of those times, and we've all experienced them. It's kind of like an ongoing thing to a certain extent, an ever-deepening thing. Where God gets out his knife, and he's doing some inner surgery in our heart. So that whatever we do is not from us or for us. It's all from his power and for his glory. That's what circumcision of the heart is all about. And let's be honest, all of us know how sometimes we quite like the praise of of other people. I mean, we like it, don't we? Let's be honest. At times, you know, and we can sometimes try to share his glory a little bit. Well, you know, it was was Dave's prophecy, you know, that uh, just unlocked that whole situation. And Dave says, yeah. (laughs) Actually, Dave wouldn't do that because he's a humble guy, but... That's when you're uncircumcised of heart, you're trying, to, you're trying to get some of the glory for yourself. I remember hearing a guy once, because encouragement is good. Honoring one another is good. Affirming one another is good. Yes. But it's ultimately not about us. It's all about him. Yes. I remember once listening to a, an old Christian leader, Charles Simpson. And leaders sometimes, <laughs> sometimes struggle with this. Sometimes you're on the receiving end of all the rubbish, but other times you can get all the, if you're not careful, if you don't handle your heart well, you can get a lot of the plaudits and the praises. And he was talking about this situation once where there was a, he was, God was really using him greatly in the nation in America. And um, his name was Charles Simpson. And he had somebody from his church come over to him and prophesy. He says, I saw, it's like the book of Revelation. I saw you amongst your head was among the stars and your hands I know, I'm making some of this up, but it was like this, you know. Your hands held the moonbeams, and your first foot was upon the land, and your other foot was upon the oceans. And of course, you're building them all. This is, oh, gosh, yeah, God's going to use me. So, oh, God, yeah. And he says he heard this little whisper from the Holy Spirit in his ear. Are you going to believe that or not? <laughs> no, Lord. <laughs> it wasn't about him. It's all about Jesus. Yes. And for every single one of us, when we're sometimes tempted, and maybe it's just drawing a little bit of attention. How about, how about maybe you, God uses you to perform a miracle and you don't tell anybody? Yes. Sometimes, by the way, God uses you to perform a miracle and you do tell people, even though they know you're gonna, they're gonna think you're a big head. But you're gonna do it anyway because you don't care what they think. It doesn't yes. matter what they think. What matters is your obedience to the Lord. Do you understand? Now, circumcision of the heart is when God says, right, you remember his, his word is like living and active, sharp and a double-edged sword. It cuts to the dividing of soul and spirit. 
Soul is when it's still a little bit about you. Spirit is when it's, it's when it's all about him. And we have to allow those times where God takes his knife. And for every one of us, nobody's above this, nobody. We allow him to take his knife and to do a work in our hearts. Because he's not going to share his glory with anybody. And by the way, that's not because God's insecure. That's not because God kind of wants all the attention. If you ever get a chance to read an essay by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, he explains it brilliantly. It's because we were never meant to carry the weight of glory that only he can carry. You see? And we're always at our best when he's getting all the glory. And when we try to share it, that's when it all goes wrong for us. He's the guy who was able to, the guy, he's the God who was able to lay aside his glory. And come down and die for us. So he's not, he's, he's insecure. But he knows when we try to get the glory that belongs to him, it's when it all starts going wrong. Oh, and by the way, only he gets to wield the knife. I think when they had, they introduced circumcision to Abraham and his family, I've got this funny feeling. There were some wives <clears throat> who had said, right, <laughs> give me the knife. <clears throat> give me the knife. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I've wanted to do this for a long time. Oops, slipped. No, um, but, sorry. <laughs> you know, sometimes we want to get to wield a knife. Only the Holy Spirit gets to wield a knife. Now and again, sometimes, sometimes, he will use a person as the knife. Something they say, something they do, oh, God, that hurts. But they're, they're oblivious of it. We don't, you see, this has happened in the past sometimes. I feel I've got the ministry of cutting people down to size so they don't get too big-headed. I feel the call. No, you didn't. Nobody's called to that ministry. Only the Holy Spirit does that. We get to encourage one another. Build one another up. But he will wield the knife at times to make sure that we're not trying to share the glory that all belongs to him. I I had three things, three directions, and three prophetic directions, three prophetic reminders. I want to share with you three quickly prophetic principles about the circumcision of the heart that... We'll just fill this out a little bit more so we understand exactly what must be true of us at this point as we're about to enter into the new thing that God's got for us. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now this was a verse, but I can't believe it is just, it is just a week ago when we finished our season of prayer and fasting. And on the Saturday night, prophetic words came. I think Dan brought one, I brought one, Peter brought one, but that, that, and there was others as well that, 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 um, God spoke to us, and, and what he spoke to us can be summed up in this verse. I remember quoting it in the evening. I said, this is what God is saying to us. So right at the end of our season of prayer and fasting, as we're moving into this, building the altar, to enter into the new thing, these were three things that God says. I want us just to look at them. I'll just share with you a little bit about what I think they mean in practice, and then we're going to respond to the Holy Spirit and to this word from him. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, Philippians chapter 3, Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about those who are still thinking circumcision is about an outward sign that distinguishes us from other people. 
It says, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God or worship God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. To be circumcised in the spirit, in the heart, inward circumcision, is those three things. And I'm going to put them in a different order. Number one, to glory or to boast in Jesus Christ. Number two, to serve, to worship God only by the Spirit. And thirdly, to put no confidence in the flesh. Number one, we are those who boast, who glory in Christ Jesus. I just love the way Sarah led us this morning in our time of prayer together. It said it really is all about Jesus. We're here to glorify Jesus. That's who it's all about. There's no other name under heaven by which anybody can be saved but the name of Jesus. Okay, we are those who, you know, they had this problem in, in, um, in Corinth that Paul had to address when he said, uh, they said, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. He says, was, was it when any of those guys, was Peter crucified for you? No, there's only one who is worthy of praise. There's only one who is upon the throne. There's only one name whose name we honor. It is the name of Jesus. And folks, I believe we should honor servants of God. I believe we should encourage and affirm one another in the gifts. But together with that, we must hold this truth. We're just servants. We are servants of God. And I don't know about you, but at the end, I just want to get a well done, good and faithful servant. And it doesn't matter what role or, or he uses me or you in. We are just servants. God bless you for the gifts and the, and, and the vision and the, the things that you've got that you can do. God bless you for them. But you're just a servant. And he, only he is the one who gets the glory. And those of us who are leaders in any capacity, and we are all leaders in our different spheres, all that we get to do is to cast our crowns down before him and to worship him. Because there's only one who's on the throne. It's Jesus. And if we're truly going to be those who are circumcised of heart as we move into this new thing, it's got to be all about him. All about him. And it's not about us. Not about any one individual. We are simply servants of God. And number two, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We worship in the Spirit. And God, by the way, on the glorying in Christ Jesus, the prophetic word that came was, when we glory in Christ Jesus, when we boast in Christ Jesus, you find yourself surrounding his throne, and there are angels around his throne. And we had the promise of angelic visitation. Why? Because we are glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And we had the promise... By the way, this morning, that God would draw people to himself. Why? Because we're lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. We glory in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting, in the book of Acts, it says this. It said, um, well, actually, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about the spirit that would flow from their bellies. And remember, this is the river that's going to transform the world. And he says, um, he was talking about the spirit who was to come. 
He had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now he's talking about an historical thing, a Pentecost, but he's also talking about a spiritual principle. If you want to see the Spirit poured out, then you've got to glorify Jesus. And when we glorify Jesus, we're going to serve in a new way of the Spirit. And by the, again, this is not, this is about, and this is the prophetic word that God spoke. Listen carefully to what the Spirit is doing and what the Spirit is saying. Watch closely. Because this is a new thing. This is a new way. Don't have Don't have fixed ideas about the way that the Holy Spirit is going to move. The Holy Spirit, by the way, does not only move like he moves in Bethel Church. He does not only move like he moves, he moved in the Bible weeks 10 years ago. Or our church 5, 10 years ago, whatever. He doesn't move just in a... The, the way he does at the advanced conference or the catch the fire conference or whatever, or whatever conference. Or he, he doesn't just move in the way he moves in that church. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way among us. And the prophetic yes. word came. Catch the fresh winds of the Holy Spirit. There's a, you know, the Holy Spirit is the most creative, diverse person in the universe. You know, he hovered over the waters, bringing creation into being. The Holy Spirit is creative. Don't limit your ideas as to what it means for the Holy Spirit to move. I believe there are people who are missing out on what God wants to do because they've got a fixed idea of what moving in the Spirit looks like. Yes. So be open to God doing something new and stay attentive to him and to his movements and to his stirrings and to what he has to say. God said this, the most important requirement right now for this season is that we are teachable. If you want to see what he's doing in his kingdom in his days, the Bible says this, unless you become like a little child, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, never, never mind enter it. So become teachable like little children. Yes. You know what? Let's, and leaders can do this, and people who are in professions can do this if you're not careful. Let's have no experts in the room. Let's have nobody trying to be the expert in the room. Let's just all be novices together. Yes. <laughs> I used to joke. It wasn't joking, really. It was for real. I used to go to the Jehoshaphat School of Leadership. Jehoshaphat says, I don't know what to do. That's my leadership strategy. Don't know what to do. But my eyes are upon you, Lord. Let's be like that. Yes. All of us novices. All of us big L plates on our back. Learning the new ways of the Spirit. And then finally, no confidence in the flesh. The flesh, I won't get to do a big theological thing on it now, but the flesh is basically when we try to live from ourselves and for ourselves. When we're relying upon our natural abilities, our natural wisdom, our natural strength, our experience maybe. Well, I've been doing this for years. So I can do it. I've done it before. I can do it again. You know, God does something really weird in me. Well, he's done a number of weird things in me. <laughs> Well, it weren't weird, just, uh, I was weird, but um, the way he's worked in me, and a couple of years ago, I preached. I have preached since, I don't know, 20 odd years or more. I've been preaching. And, you know, sometimes I've been all right, you know, sometimes not so good, you have, a, you, have a, you have a duffer day now and again. Sometimes I've been great by his grace. But last year, I didn't want to preach anymore. Some of you might be thinking, thank God. But no, no, I didn't want to preach anymore. 
I was scared. I remember going to David. I said, Dave, I'm, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I don't feel I can do it. And Dave, being a good friend that he is, said, good. Because <laughs> God was doing something in me. I, I couldn't rely upon what I've always done before. And I, I believe that's something that's going to really characterize our days in the, in, in the next few months and years to come. Is God's doing such a new thing. We cannot rely upon the way we've done it before. Or our gifts. Or what we think we can do. Our experience. There's a story in the Bible about a, a leader called Aaron. And there's a whole bunch of the leaders and they all had their staffs or their sticks. And God told them to put them down. The, thing, the stick they had in their hand. They told them to put them down. They put them all down. And amongst them all, Aaron's rod, Aaron's stick, it, it, I, was, I was hoping for a miracle this morning, but never mind. I just, it, just got to use it in imagination. And that it budded and blossomed and fruit came, almonds came from it. And God was teaching them a principle. Your stick, just having a stick, a staff, a rod, whatever, is not enough. It's got to fall to the ground and die. And then flourish in resurrection life. And some people, some of us, sometimes we have our sticks. This is our stick. Well, I've been doing this for many years. I've been doing this 20 years or more, you know. <laughs> Sorry, this looks quite threatening, doesn't it? I don't mean I've been doing this for 20 years. Some people, no, no, I won't go there, but uh, it doesn't matter. I've been in this church 40 years, it doesn't matter. I've got this qualification, you know, good for you. It's just a stick. I'm really gifted in this, I believe you are. It's just a stick. Unless it falls to the ground and dies... It's just a stick. Yes. But if you experience death and resurrection, then God can use it amazingly. There's a story God spoke to me before this guy I met in the graveyard, and this was his significance in the graveyard. God spoke to me. I, I couldn't tell you these things before, but I've got to tell you them now. Because God's done some shifted in things in the Holy Spirit. Four years ago. God spoke to me in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha and his company of prophets, he said, this place is too small for us. We want to be enlarged. We want to have a go at things. We want to express ourselves. We want to... And Elisha said, that's great. Go for it. Go for it. I'm not holding you back. Go for it. I said, we want you to come with us. He said, I'll come with you. It's fine. You go for it. And then one of them was using an axe. And when he's chopping down to build the big place, the axe disappeared into the pond, lake, whatever. And he says, oh, Elisha, Elisha, it was, it was borrowed. There's a limit to what you can achieve by something that's just borrowed. You can borrow some good stuff, it's okay. You can borrow some good stuff from Bethel. You can borrow some good stuff from Peter Scazzaro's EHS. You can borrow some good stuff from the business world. You can borrow this stuff, but you'll only get so far with something that's borrowed. And Elijah had to come along, and he threw a stick in the water, and the axe head floated. He says, now I'm teaching you a principle of death and resurrection. And now you can use that axe effectively, because it's gone through the experience of death and resurrection. And God spoke to me and said, that's what I needed to do. 
And notice, by the way, Elisha didn't get hold of the axe head. said, no, I'm doing this. I'm the big shot around here. He says, no, you pick it up. I want you to grow. I want you to develop. I want you to use your gifts. But I want to teach you principles of death and resurrection. Otherwise, it's just a stick. Or it's just an axe head. And God spoke to me then. Through, again, my friend Dave. He said, the death and resurrection that you are experiencing in your journey right now, you're going to lead the church in. I believe that was four and a half years ago. I kept it in my heart. Didn't tell many people. And then I met an old man in a graveyard. And he said, it's time for restoration. It's time for resurrection. In the graveyard, I heard a word of resurrection. Go back and finish the work you began. And please understand me, folks. It's not to grab hold of everybody's axe head and start saying, I'm the only axe head wheeled around here. No, no. It's just to make sure that whatever stick you've got, whatever axe head you've got, it's experiencing death and resurrection. My job, one of my jobs, is to equip everybody to do what God's called them to do. As much as I can, God can unify, and I'm just a servant. And when he's done with that, I want to go. When he's done with it. And I will teach everyone as much as I can. It doesn't matter what qualification you've got, what experience, what gift, unless it falls to the ground and dies and experiences resurrection. It's just a stick. Don't keep yourself in pain by saying, I want people to recognize my stick. I've got a lovely stick. Yeah, it's a lovely stick. I don't feel my stick's been appreciated enough. I love your stick. I just want it to die and come into resurrection life. Is this making sense, folks? That's what God has told me. What my contribution is to us moving forward is to teach us principles of death and resurrection. And because I'm a bit of an idiot at times, I had to go through a long journey of death and resurrection to get there. But now, by his grace, I want to help us all to understand the principles of death and resurrection. Amen. 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 Now.